Before I get to my next guest, Bill Mallon, I want to remind you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Power and precision. Adele Golf's SMS and SMS Pro irons offer the ultimate in iron adjustability. Featuring the revolutionary swing match weighting technology, precisely dial in each iron to your swing by moving the heaviest weight to its optimal position for maximum performance. Learn more about them by going to adelgolf.com. And folks, do you sway and you're off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried squares? Try the new Speed Bolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Bill Mallon. Bill is from Patterson, New Jersey. He grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts, and later moved down to Raleigh, North Carolina. His father was a competitive cyclist. Bill attended Duke University and played on the men's golf team, where he lettered from 1970 to 1973. He helped them to top six finishes all four years in the ACC championship, and he was named a Ping GCAA All-American in 1972 and 73, and he was twice voted to the Outstanding College Athletes of America. Individually, he finished tied for sixth in the 1972 ACC Championship and jumped to fourth in 1973. He won 43 amateur championships, including the Massachusetts and New England amateur championships twice and one mid-Atlantic title. He also won the New England Open in back-to-back years of 1976 and 77. Bill went through Q School and earned his tour card in 1975, and he played on the PGA Tour through 1979. His best finish was a tied for fifth at the 1977 Tucson Open, and he played in the 1977 U.S. Open at Southern Hills. Following his PGA Tour career, he went back to Duke and earned his medical degree, and he has become one of the most outstanding orthopedic surgeons in our country, and he spent several years as the medical editor for Golf Digest. He is an Olympic historian, and he's written several books on the topic and co-founded the International Society of Olympic Historians, and I'm very honored to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bill, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Bill, I want to start by going back to your start in the game of golf. Like I mentioned in your intro, your father was a competitive cyclist. How'd you get into golf? Well, I, I was a competitive cyclist, too, and we lived in Framingham, Massachusetts, and I raced in uh, Massachusetts in the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I actually was the Massachusetts junior champion one year, although there were only four people in the race. It wasn't much of a victory. And uh, then for the ninth grade, we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, and there was no cycling there. Nobody did it in 1965. Um, That was, there was just nothing for me to do. 
And we were there, we moved it early in the summer. So I had a couple months before school started. So dad asked me if I'd like to go maybe try and play golf. And they took me to the golf course when both my parents worked. And I started playing golf in Raleigh that summer, played all summer and I got pretty good pretty quick. So I kept playing golf. Bill, I read a story when you were at Duke that you and one of your dorm mates once drove around the campus drive circle 500 times. The last 10 laps, you actually drove backwards. What's behind that story? Uh, I believe that there was uh, some alcohol behind that story, <laughs> as, as I remember. Uh, you know, we were just in the dorm having a few beers and just decided to do a crazy thing. I mean, you shouldn't drive when you've been drinking. I, I, I don't drink very much. So I wasn't drunk, but uh, um, it's, it's also pretty hard to get in an accident driving around the traffic circle. That's about about 50 feet wide. <laughs> we decided we would try to set some sort of record, which I think we did. Bill, several of the players I've talked with that played when you did, um, they talk about getting through Q school and that being one of the most pressure packed tournaments that they ever played in. What was it like for you getting through Q school? It was one of the most pressure packed tournaments <laughs> I ever played in. Uh, you know, one of the great things that happened to me at Q school was, uh, and this is in the days of only, you know, three television channels, 1975. The night before my first round, I'm, you know, I'm scared to death and, you know, very nervous. And my favorite James Bond movie came on TV and I got to watch it. And that really relaxed me, which was You Only Live Twice with Sean Connery. And uh, I watched that and uh, that relaxed me. And I shot 69 the first day and I was always within the cut. I, I think that year it was 25, the top 25 made it. It was at Disney World and I was never outside of the cut after that first round. And um, I, I remember the, the last round, especially, I was so nervous. I didn't play very well in the front. I shot 38. And uh Right then, I think I was right on the border of the cut line, and um, 10 was a short par five, and I hit a four iron second shot on the green about 25 feet, and I left the 25-footer five feet short, and then I left the five-footer six inches short, and I just started laughing because I said, well, I can't choke any worse than that, <laughs> and, and that kind of relaxed me for the rest of the round in one sense, and then in another sense, I was still so nervous that I just said, just go ahead and just swing as hard as you can on everything. And I just sort of went on autopilot and I played great from there. Um, and I think I shot three under in the last eight holes and I, I made it by, I think, about three shots to spare. Bill, 1976 at the Tallahassee Open. You finished tied for 63rd. You took home a cool $140 for that tournament that week. Was that the first time you made the cut on a PGA Tour event? Um, no, um, my my first tournament on the PGA Tour uh, was was the Crosby at Pebble Beach and the other courses, um, which was actually the first tournament I, I I qualified for, and I made the cut that week. It's a three round cut, and um, I uh, I played the fourth round. I had a great fourth round pairing. They they put us out in foursomes because of the amateur pairs, and I was with three other guys that had not uh, that their amateurs didn't make. Cut. So I played the last round with Frank Beard, who was a former number one money winner, uh, Bobby Nichols, a former PGA champion, 
and Steve Melnick, who was a former U.S. amateur champion. I had great pairing for my first fourth round on the PGA Tour, but I made my first cut that I, for a tournament I got in. Wow. Um, that year in June, 76 in June at the Western Open, you have one of the best finishes that you had on tour. You finished six, only three strokes behind winner Al Guyberger, and it must have been a brutal final round because when I look at the scores, Bob Dixon, who was leading going into the final round, he shoots 80. There were 10 rounds of 80 or worse, including Lenny Watkins, who shot 86. You go out and shoot 74. What do you remember about that tournament, that final round? Well, I played with uh, one of my close friends on tour that week, um, Joe Porter. Um, Joe ended up finishing second um, behind Guy Berger for the week. And, um, um, you know, I, I think I was about in fifth place going into the last round, but I, I was never, I never really had a shot to win it in the last round, even though I shot 74. I was always about three shots off the lead. I would have had to, you know, just go crazy on the last few holes, and I didn't. Um, and, you know, I just played solid that round. I didn't, um, I, I didn't do anything, you know, super uh, great or anything, and I didn't do anything stupid. I, I just, again, played solid. The thing I remember most about the week was in the second round. Um, I, I don't can't remember what I shot in the first round, but in the second round, I shot 40 on the front nine. This is on Butler National, which back then was the hardest course on tour. So I shot 40 on the front nine in the second round, and I'm kind of like on the verge. If I don't play well the back nine, I'm going to miss the cut. And then I shot 30 on the back nine, which someone told me was the course record for the back nine. And that ended up with a 70 and that that was what put me up near the leaders at that point and like i said in your intro you played in the 1977 u.s open at southern hills the heat that year was off the charts hubert green wins the tournament that week but dealt with death threats during the final round were you aware of the death threats and the things that were going on and what do you remember about that week well, i remember that week very well um mainly i don't know if you know this um I got married uh, the Saturday before that U.S. Open, so that was oh my. Um And uh, I had told my wife, you know, if I qualify for the Open, we'll play the Open, and, if, and then we'll have a honeymoon later. And if I don't, we'll go on a honeymoon somewhere. So our honeymoon was, you know, people say, "Where was your honeymoon?" I go, Tulsa, Oklahoma, which never <laughs> doesn't sound like a real great honeymoon spot, but it was brutally hot. Um, I, I didn't wear a glove, and uh, I, um, on real hot days, sometimes I wore uh, like tennis wristbands uh, to keep my hands a little drier. And that week it was so hot. And um, I was, I always sweated a lot anyway. In high school, they voted me most likely to break a sweat. So uh, <laughs> uh, what I did was I soaked my tennis wristbands in water to keep my wrists and hands cool, to keep my, my hands a little drier when I was playing. The one thing I remember, um, I can't remember if this was a Thursday or Friday, but, you know, you always play in the morning one day and the afternoon the next. And on the day I played in the morning, I'm leaving for the course about 6.30 or 7. And there was a, a time temperature sign in, in the bank in back of our hotel. And uh, as I got up at 7 o'clock and drove there, the temperature was already 82 degrees. But wow. It was pretty hot that week. So, Bill, after graduating from Duke with a degree in math and physics and the success that you had 
those four years out on the PGA Tour, including being inside the top 100 money leaders twice, why'd you decide to leave the tour and go back to Duke to get your medical degree? You know, I was in the top 100 money winners my first two years, 1976 and 77, and everyone always looks at what they make now and thinks, oh, well, you were making a ton of money. My official money in 1977 was about $24,000. Um, so it's a little different than today. And, you know, I made some money off the tour um, with a few little endorsements and some pro-ams and other local tournaments I played. But, you know, I probably made no more in 77 than about $60,000. And it costs money to play the tour. You know, nobody's paying for it except yourself. And then at the end of 77 and then into 78 and 79, I got the driver yips. I, I couldn't hit a fairway to save my life. And I only kept my card for 79 because Dean Beeman um, realized I had done pretty well the first two years. And he he gave me an extent, a one-year extension, and I kept his card for 79. But I made very few cuts those last few years. I think I only made one or two cuts each year. Um, and you know, I just I had to do something different. There just wasn't any money out there unless you were near the top. And not only wasn't I near the top, I, I mean I was near the bottom now. Um, and I had to do something to make a living. And uh, my wife and I talked about it and talked about medical school and I decided to go back. Talk about that decision to go back to school. You majored in math and physics the first time around. What got you to go back to medical school and why orthopedic surgery? Well, I had a shoulder surgery myself uh, in 75, actually only about seven months before I went to Houston. And I'd sort of become interested in it. And when I was looking to do something else, I went back to the surgeon who operated on me. And I asked him if I could spend a little time with him and watch some surgery. And I, I spent a couple of days in his office and watched a couple of surgeries. And became interested in it. And I knew it was a you know pretty good way to make a living. I didn't really realize at the time how long it takes to get to be an orthopedic surgeon with everything. But, uh, um, you know, my, I had a background in math and physics. So, I had good science, so I could I, I knew I could handle the science of medical school. That wasn't a problem for me. But I I had never been a pre-med um, at all. I'd never taken any of the standard pre-med courses other than what they require in physics. So I had to go back to school for a year to get into medical school, which I did at Northern Illinois University, which was near my wife's parents' home. We lived them lived with them for about 10 months, and uh, I took courses there. You've contributed your medical knowledge to Golf Digest for many years. Talk about marrying your golf knowledge with your medical knowledge to help us understand what's going on in our golf swing. I haven't been the editor at Golf Digest now for about 10 or 15 years. I did that from 87 to about 2008 or 9. I wrote a column for them for about 15 years called Ask the Doctor. Um, where people wrote in questions and I, I gave answers to what they could do. And I also, uh, I was a co-author on one book um, uh, called Medicine from Tea to Green, in which three of us were co-editors of the book, and talking about medical problems in golf and how you deal with them and things like that. So that was one way. And then I wrote another one, and that was more of a medical textbook type of thing. But the other one I wrote was more of a popular book. Um, which actually, I never even thought about doing that, but a, a book agent actually tracked me down and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. I said, yeah, sure. So 
uh, and that one was called the Golf Doctor. Um, and uh, we wrote that. And, uh, again, talking about golf injuries and the golf swing, how you can adjust your golf swing to play with injuries and, and various other aspects of the medical problems you see in golf. And, you know, over the years, I, I wrote a number of journal articles on golf injuries and various things about them. Not, not a ton. My subspecialty in orthopedics was shoulder surgery and shoulder and elbow surgery. Um, so I wrote more papers on that than uh, simply on golf. But I did write a, a series of about five or six articles when I was a resident, actually, with one of the attending surgeons at Duke. Um, on playing golf with hip replacements and knee replacements. And those articles have been pretty well uh, received. They've been quoted a lot and uh, referenced in other articles in the literature over the years. And actually, gosh, at least 10 years, it might be 15 years now, at, at a meeting of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeon, we had a symposium on playing golf with uh, hip and knee replacements. Uh, and the symposium was me, uh, Jimmy Andrews, the renowned sports doctor, Jack Nicholas, the renowned golfer, and uh, then two other uh, uh, surgeons, primarily hip and knee arthroplasty, John Callahan and Ben Beerbaum. And, um, you know, so those are just some of the ways I've you know, tried to contribute to, um, you know, the medical knowledge of uh, golf. And Bill, you weighed in recently about when you think Tiger is going to be able to play again. I think you said it would be six months to a year from now before he'd probably be able to get back out there. Talk about why. Well, um, first of all, it's at least six months. Uh, six months is when he can maybe start hitting balls, I think. Um, he had a, a, a fusion in his foot, a um, thing called a subtalar fusion, which is a fusion of two bones in the back of the foot, just underneath your ankle joint. And, um, you know, that has to fuse together. They have to heal first. And during that time, he can't be putting a lot of weight on it for at least several weeks. That How long he stays off it exactly uh, depends on his surgeon's uh, advice and, you know, what he uh, thinks he needs to stay off it. And then he gradually has to, you know, start putting more and more weight on it and walking, you know, without a, you know, he might be using a cane for a while. But right now he's probably a rolling walker or something like that, or he'll use crutches until he's able to put weight on it. So all that's going to delay him just getting back to walking, much less swinging a golf club. And so it'll be at least six months before he can even hit ball. I, I, I don't, you know, he, he last played at the Masters in uh, you know, like the second week of April. I think the earliest we'll see him back is the next Masters. I, I'd be surprised if he plays before that. The only possibility before that, to me, maybe like uh, the father's son or something like that, where he could ride a cart, maybe just hit some shots. Uh, you know, not a full full scale event. It's also on the ground, but but he's going to be out for a while. So, what do you think the long term impact on his golf swing is going to be? How effective can he be even when he's healed? You know, getting back out on the golf course and and trying to play tournament golf. Well, he's never going to be the tiger of 2000. Um, I don't. I don't think he's ever even going to be the tiger of 2015 again. Um, you know, the limiting factor for him in the few tournaments he's played since the accident, um, which I think was in 2021, um, has has been his ability to walk. 
um, not so much his golf swing. I think that's still going to be a big limiting factor, how well he can walk. Um, a subtalar fusion, which is the type of fusion he had in the back of his foot, allows you to walk pretty well. And, and Tiger has been limited with his walking by the amount of pain he had in his uh, foot because of the arthritis he developed from the accident. And the fusion should alleviate most of that pain, but it's not a panacea. It doesn't make your uh, foot normal. Um, you know, all doctors and all orthopedists, when they're seeing patients over their years, they sort of develop pet phrases and sayings that they say to patients. And one of the ones that I always said to people was, you know, they'd say, can you make my shoulder normal? And I'd say, you know, I'm pretty good at this surgery but I'm not as good as the guy that made your shoulder in the first place. And it's the same for Tiger's foot. I mean, that, that fusion works pretty well. And the guy who did it for him is a well-known foot and ankle surgeon, but he's not as good as the guy that made Tiger's foot and ankle in the first place. So Tiger's foot and ankle are never going to be normal. Um, and he's never going to walk hundred percent normal. It's his right uh, foot that, has been impacted by this. And that's one thing that helps him because the right foot and ankle don't take as much stress during a golf swing as the left foot and ankle do, where you, as you come into impact at higher speed, higher forces, higher torques, you know, you roll over onto your left ankle as you go through impact and then you follow through. Really on your golf swing, you need to, you know, you're sort of on your right foot, just stable during the backswing. And on the Downswing and into impact, really all you do is raise up on the toe. You don't you push off a little, but not that much. And um, so that that will help him. I think he'll be able to swing okay. I just don't know how he'll be able to walk a golf course for four rounds well enough to be competitive. Bill, just a couple more before I let you go. And you posted a picture of you with Jeff Burry, who was inducted into the Kansas Golf Hall of Fame. And more importantly than that, Rick Werner who you mentioned dated Cheryl Ladd in high school. Got to hear that story. Well, Rick and Jeff and I, uh, before I got on tour, I worked at a golf club in Vero Beach, Florida in the winters uh, while I played amateur tournaments in the summer. This was after Duke. And uh, the three of us were roommates uh, and basically working as assistant pros, of course. And Rick was from South Dakota. His nickname is Sodak. Called him that because none of us had ever met anybody from South Dakota before, all of us East Coast people. And he's an absolutely great guy. He's from Huron, South Dakota. And then in the late 70s, you know, uh, Charlie's Angels came out with Cheryl Ladd. And one night I'm watching YouTube and she's on Johnny Carson and he's talking to her and, and he goes, Well, you know, where'd you grow up? And she says, Well, I grew up in Huron, South Dakota. Well, Rick's the same age as I am. And I looked at Cheryl Ladd and I go, She looks about my age. So next time I talked to him, I said, hey, do you know Cheryl Ladd? And he goes, she's my high school girlfriend. And he goes, you mean Cheryl Jean Stoppelmore? Which was, that's apparently her original name. And then she became Sherry Moore. And then they, and then she got married and became Cheryl Ladd. So yeah, Rick dated uh, Cheryl Ladd a little bit in high school. Um, and that was a big thing for all of us to know that. <laughs> Bill, you're a wonderful follow on Twitter. Let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with you on social media. Well, I only do Twitter. I, I did do Facebook, uh, but I'm, I, I think I'm kicked out now um, because I somebody hacked my Facebook account and uh, I had to close it because of that. And I can't get back in because 
I still have the same email address and they won't let me back into that email. So I, I, I do Twitter and it's at Bam Bam, like the Flintstones Bam Bam, uh, at Bam Bam 1729 is my Twitter account. Well, Bill, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of this show. I, I hope we get the privilege of having you back on again sometime. It was a lot of fun having you here. I know we're just getting to the tip of the iceberg of all the great stories that you've had over the course of, of your career, whether it was in golf or, or as an orthopedic surgeon. I hope we get the privilege of hearing more of those a little bit later on. Well, Chris, thanks for having me on. I hope I get to do it again, too. Appreciate it. Take care, Bill. Stay safe. All the best you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Okay. Take care. You too. Thanks. That is Bill Mallon, folks. And I, and I tell you, from a wonderful college career, again, 43 amateur championships Bill won, to spending some time out on the PGA Tour and now one of the best orthopedic surgeons that our country has to offer. Great insights from all of that, from college to the PGA Tour, and then getting some ideas about Tiger Woods and, and what he can expect, uh, how long that healing is going to take, and then where he goes after that. So the expertise from Bill is uh, fantastic, and I'm glad we got to spend some time with him. And uh, like I say, hopefully we get that privilege again soon. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out again to Tom Patrick, Evan Schiller, Bruce Devlin, and Bill Mallon for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are 2013 Senior Open Champion and good friend Mark Wiebe will be back with us, as will Dr. Bob Jones IV. Always a treat to get to spend some time with Doc. Following him will be Golf Channel host Damon Hack. Always so much fun spending some time with Damon. And then we'll round things out with another good friend and the host of Rappers Don't Golf and new author now, Tucker Booth. Folks, I can't thank you enough for continuing to make Next on the Tee a part of your golf content. You can find this show available as a podcast just about everywhere. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audio Boom, Player.fm, and Good Pods. And my sincere thanks to those folks for making Next on the Tee one of their recommended podcasts. Download their free app and stream your favorite podcast right there on your favorite device. And most of all, my thanks to all of you. You guys are the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.